my wife Angie and I celebrate 12 years of marriage, uh, which was awesome. Uh, at least for me it was. I don't know how it's been for her, but she got the more the short end of the stick on our, our whole marriage deal. But I'm grateful that uh, I've been able to be blessed with her for, for 12 years. And in these 12 years of marriage, there's a lot that I've learned about her. You get to know someone really well when you live with them day in and day out for 12 years, for 12 years. And so one of the things that I've learned is I've learned uh, the great plague and the danger that is dust mites. I was unaware of this danger that was present with me every day uh, until I got married. And then by Angie's kindness, she made me aware of how dangerous dust mites are. If you're unaware, let me let you know about this great uh, peril that dwells in your home. So if you do not wipe off your feet before you get into bed, there's a chance you could be bringing dust mites into the bed with you. And these dust mites, they're microscopic. You can't see them. But you never know if in the middle of the night they might climb up and choke the life out of you. So you better wipe your feet off before you get into bed because dust mites could kill you. There's lots I've learned. There's also lots of things that I continue to learn. There's things that I, I don't know about her. And I think that's actually one of the beautiful things about being in a relationship. It's not just what you know about the person. It's the continual mystery. It's knowing that you know someone truly, but you don't know them fully. And it's the joy of continuing to discover and get to know one another. We've been in a series we've been calling here Questioning Christianity, where we're looking at some of the hard questions for the Christian faith. And this is because we believe it's a healthy part of our faith to be continually learning about God. To not act like we can just check a box and we have it all figured out, but to continue to explore more and more the beauty of who God is. We need to understand that having faith does not mean that you know the answer to every question fully. To say that you know God truly and to have a meaningful relationship with Him does not require you knowing everything about Him. I have a meaningful relationship with my wife without knowing everything about her. There's lots of answers to questions that I don't have, things that I don't fully understand, and yet I can say I know her truly even though I don't know her fully. And why can I say that? Because I trust her. I trust her. And so when I ask her questions, my questions are not questions of suspicion. Where are you? What are you doing? You know, I don't put a GPS tracker on her car so I can check out every move. No, I trust her. I trust her. And so the questions I ask her are questions that come from a place of trust. And therefore, it's a joy to explore more. Our goal in this series has not been to try to answer every single nuance of every single question. The goal has been to show us how we can trust this God. It's how we, how we can trust God. We're going to have more questions there's every single question that we tackled in this series could have been a series unto itself. I could have preached at least 10 more times things that we talked about during these past few weeks. But just because we weren't able to plumb the death fully does not mean that we can't trust God truly. The goal of this time has been to show that faith is really about knowing enough about God to get at that place of being able to trust Him. To get at that place of being able to trust Him. Today, as we kind of bring this series to a close, we've been looking at questions that really come up as objections to the Christian faith, things that can erode our trust in God. This morning, I want to close this series by looking at 
a different kind of question. Not questions that come from an objection about God, but rather questions that are evidence for God. Not objections about God, but questions that are evidence for God. Romans chapter 1, which we heard read to us earlier, really says some very profound, profound things. It says that God is not some mystery that's unknowable. No, God can be clearly seen. Like an artist's signature on a painting, or designer's, designer's logo on something they made, the mark of the Creator is everywhere present in this world that He has created. And that is true in many different ways, but today I want to give you three ways. Three ways that we can see God. Three evidences that we have, if you will, that there is a God. And my hope in doing these things is that our trust in God would be deepened and that we would be equipped more and more to be able to share with other people about why they can trust in God too. So we're going to look at three kind of evidences for God, and I'm going to give them to you in the form of questions. These are three questions that we can think about, that as we think about these questions, these can build our trust in God. And as we engage other people with these questions, hopefully this can be provoking for them, thought-provoking for them, to bring them to a place of trust in God. So three questions. Here's the first one. Here's the first question that can build our trust. It's the question, how do you explain the entire field of science? How do you explain the field of science? It's popular in our culture to act like science and faith are diametrically opposed to each other. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, says almost no scientist is a believer in God. He says that belief in God is something that we needed before science. Before we had explanations for things, we kind of needed to invent God to make up the gaps in our knowledge. But now that we know how things work, we really don't need the explanation of God. And so he says that no scientists are, in fact, God, uh, believe in God. However, it's really important whenever someone makes a statement to actually look at the research and see where that statement comes from. Because despite what Richard Dawkins would posit, despite what we might even believe, that it's really hard to believe in science and believe in God at the same time, it's actually not true at all. The Pew Research Group, which is one of the uh, biggest research groups in the world, did a study five years ago and found that 41% of scientists have a belief in God that is based on a Christian worldview. And only 18% don't. So more than double. More than double. Richard Dawkins is, quite frankly, just not right when he says no scientists believe in God. And these aren't just scientists who kind of grew up in a Christian home. No, look at, you can look up King uh, Jing Kong, who's a professor at MIT. Um, did not come from a Christian family, actually grew up in China, so didn't even come from a Christian culture. She became a Christian through her field of study. And she says this, my research has become a platform for me to do God's work. His creation, the way he made this world, is very interesting. Andrew Gosler, who's the director of the Department of Human, Scientists, uh, Human Sciences at Oxford University, who's a Jewish person, he came to believe that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of the Jewish people. 
And he says this, my coming to faith in Christ did not rest on only a single issue, but was a holistic redefining of perspectives that came together through every aspect of life. Russell Coburn, who's a professor of physics and nanotechnology, he became a Christian in grad school and he said, understanding more of science, science does not make God smaller. It allows us to see his creativity in greater detail. There is just story after story after story of scientists as they study this world who were not having any kind of faith in God coming to believe that there truly must be a God. Now, just because science believes something doesn't prove anything. doesn't prove anything. But it should provoke a question. Why does the study of science lead so many to a place of faith? That should provoke a question. There's many reasons for that. I'll just give you one. Think about what science is. In science, you're trying to discover how things are. You're trying to discover why things work the way they do. And so science has been able to come up with various constants, various mathematical formulations that they can use to figure out how things work. So think about, like, for example, the speed of light or the gravitational pull of gravity or the law of force, right? This is what science is looking for. It's looking for things that are unchanging, immutable, always the same, always the same. They're unchanging. They're eternal. They always have been one way, and they always will be a certain way. They're looking for things that are transcendent meaning they're not bound to one specific culture. This isn't just true here. No, this is, transcends all culture, transcends all times, is above all, and is true everywhere. They're looking for truths that are omnipresent, not just part, uh, true in part of the world, but true for all of the universe. They're looking for truth that is personal, things that actually make a difference in the everyday stuff of our lives. I was reading an article in Scientific America, which is definitely not a Christian publication, um, but it's a peer-reviewed journal of, uh, of sciences, and this is what it says. The sciences are full of constants. One defines the speed of light. Another quantifies the pull of gravity and so on. We routinely use these numbers, flipping to dog-eared tables and reference books, encoding them into our software without much thought because, well, they are constants. But listen to this. The weird thing about such constants is that there's no theory to explain their existence. The whole field of science is based upon the reality that there are constants, that there are things that are true. But there's no explanation in the field of science, there's no theory for why those things are true. But I want to ask you this question. When you're talking about things that are unchanging and immutable, when you're talking about things that are eternal, when you're talking about things that are transcendent and omnipresent and personal, what does that sound to you like? Friends, that sounds a lot like how the Bible describes God. See, what scientists are realizing is as they study their field of science, as they find these things, what they're seeing is they're seeing God at work. Vern Poitras, who has a Ph.D. in mathematics from Harvard University and another Ph.D. in theology from Westminster Seminary, he says every scientist believes in God. 
whether they acknowledge it or not. Every science believes in God. They have to in order to do their job. In order to do science, you have to believe that there is something that is unchanging and transcendent and omnipresent and eternal and personal. In other words, you have to believe in how God is described in the Bible. You have to. You have to. Whether unconscious or conscious, you have to believe in Him because you are interacting with His character each and every day. That's what Romans 1.20 is saying to us. It's saying that God's eternal power, who He is, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Think about it this way. Say so you and I are both looking at my buddy Joe. And, and we're, both, we're both describing him. Like, hey, he's probably about, I'll be generous and say 5'9". Um, you know, he, he has a, a pretty good physique. He's the kind of guy who, you know, he just builds muscles in his sleep. Um, I'm not really sure what his ethnicity is. Somewhere between Middle Eastern, African American, and Asian. He's got all kinds of different things mixed up in there. Right, but we could begin to describe, we could describe his personality. He's a fun guy. He enjoys people. He comes alive when there's others around. Like, we could both describe him we could, as we interact with him, as we talk with him. But if we're both describing him and you're like, yeah, but I'm not really sure if he exists. It's like, wait, what? Like, we just sat here and we wrote down a description of Joe. And now you're asking me, does Joe really exist? Like, how is this even possible? You know? Which one of us is being more unreasonable in that situation? I had a, uh, a student once who uh, I was teaching at a chapel in a high school, and the student came up to me and said, hey, listen, I really appreciate all that you're saying, but I just, I try to stay out of faith, and I really, I just believe more in science and reason. Science and reason. I said, okay, I, I appreciate that, but can I ask you a question? What is your reason for thinking that science can even happen? What, what's your reason for thinking that there are these constants in this world? These things that both you and I would describe in the same way, why do you think that is? What's your scientific reason for that? He's like, well, I've never thought of that. I guess, I guess it just kind of is. I'm like, okay, well, let me tell you about this God that you just think kind of is. You believe in God already. It's not a question of whether you believe or not. It's just the fact that you don't yet know how to put a name to him. Let me tell you about this God that you already believe in. When we start to talk about science, friends, we're not talking about things that should make us nervous. No, science is actually one of the great evidences there are that the creator God exists. So that's just one question. That's one question. Here's a second question. Second question we can ask as we try to build our trust in God and engage others with the truth about God question is this, why are there shared moral values? Why are there shared moral values across time, across cultures, universally? Why do these shared moral values exist? Now on the one hand, our postmodern culture here in the Western world wants to say there are not shared moral values. You get to make up your own morality. Live your own truth. Live and let live. I need to be free to be me. My body, my choice, right? All these different cliches and sayings to kind of say, get out of my business, I'm going to do me, you do you. There's no such thing as shared morality, there's just us own, all of us running by our own script. 
But the reality is why people say that and why we can like, that's kind of the culture and the air that we live. No one actually lives that way. No one lives that way. You know, if someone says, oh, listen, hey, listen, just live and let live. Okay. And you'll hold off and punch them in the face. Guess what? They're not going to be very excited that you're living and letting live at that moment. Like, oh, you know, my body, my choice. Okay, with my body, my choice, I choose to punch you in the face. Guess what? All of a sudden, they're going to want to tell me how I should be using my body. Right? We're all relativists until it actually affects us. The late Ravi Zacharias, one of the great Christian thinkers the past 50 years, passed away tragically this year. He, uh, he tells a story one time of someone who came up to a microphone to ask him a question, and they said, hey, how can you tell me that there's such a thing as shared moral values? Like, why shouldn't we just be free to let everyone live as they see fit? Ravi Zacharias said, do you lock your doors at night? If you do, you're impinging on someone else's freedom of what they might want to do to come into a house and rob you blind. Right. The reality is people can talk about moral relativity and that we all get to make up our own different stories, but no one actually functionally lives that way. We all have a general sense that it's wrong to harm others and it's okay to protect yourself. Across cultures, across time, that's a shared morality that we all have. If a child is running out into a street, it's very clear to anyone, regardless of your faith background, regardless of how you were brought up, regardless of where you live and when you live, it's very clear if you see a child running into danger, the moral thing to do is to stop them. You don't say, oh, well, they made that choice. You know, hey, got to live with that. I'm not going to infringe on their free. No, you stop them. It's very clear. These, these moral imperatives we have that just come to us instinctually. But where do those instincts come from? Where do those instincts come from? Some would posit that, well, you know, obviously uh, evolution can explain that. I mean, if you're not going to protect yourself and protect others, you would die out really quickly. So that's just an evolutionary instinct to protect that's, that's come to us. However, the challenge is, as we've understood more of the field of science and evolution, we found that there's this thing that exists in humans doesn't exist in any other kind of species. It exists in humans only. It's the idea of true altruism. True altruism. What true altruism is, it's the idea that a human being will act in a way that does not give any kind of reproductive benefit to oneself or one's uh, relatives. It, there's no benefit you derive from something, and yet you will still do that good thing, even if it doesn't benefit you whatsoever. Evolutionary biologist Jerry, uh, Dr. Jerry Kahn from um, uh, Princeton University, not a Christian at all, but he talks about this idea of true altruism. Uh, he says a behavior that does not directly have any kind of reproductive benefit to oneself. It, it's the impulse to run into a burning building to rescue a complete stranger. This is what he says. True altruism like that isn't known in any other species. We know nothing about the evolution of true human altruism except that it probably didn't evolve. They have no explanation, no reason why, if it's my evolutionary instinct should be to protect myself and protect my family. So why would I put myself or my family in danger by trying to run after a complete stranger and do something that has no direct benefit to me? Everything in evolutionary theory should say that's the exact opposite of what I should do. 
And yet if there's a burning building and I'm standing outside, it doesn't matter who's in it, if I hear someone calling for help, we would all agree the right thing to do is to run to try to help that person. And so evolutionists, have, they have no explanation for why this exists. Even Richard Dawkins says that this is just an accident. There's no explanation. It just happened by, by accident. But notice, in saying that it happens by accident, he's still acknowledging that it exists. There's this shared morality that clearly exists universally across humanity. And so I just would ask the question, which makes more sense? That that just accidentally happened. That evolution and natural selection, which has worked to so finely tune our eye that we can detect a single proton, something so finely tuned as that, there's this kind of accident that's randomly happened that made us moral people. Is it, is it, is it more reasonable to believe in random or to believe that there's a designer who's created this way? A God who's made us this way. A God who, as Romans 1.19 says, not only do we see his power, but we see his divine nature. God hasn't just shown us what he can do powerfully. He's shown us his nature. He's shown us his character. He shows us what he is like. This morality that we all have comes from the fact that we're all made in the image of God. And because we're all made in the image of God, every single human being knows instinctually right and wrong because we know God. And so therefore we know what is right, Him, and we know what is wrong, anything opposed to Him. This might be on the conscious basis or it might be on the unconscious basis, but either way, we all have the divine stamp impressed upon our conscious minds. We see God. We see God. Now many people say, yeah, we see God. <laughs> You're saying that we see Him because we see all the right things. I'd say we see an evil God because we see all the wrong things. If there's a God who knows right and wrong, then why does he allow so much wrong to happen? Well, we had two sermons on that, so I'm not going to re-preach those sermons. But I will say this. C.S. Lewis, uh, the great professor at Oxford University, he used to say this is what kept him from believing in God. It was seeing all the suffering in the world and seeing the injustice of God. He's like, man, if I'm seeing God's character at work, I'm not seeing a good character at all. And that kept him from believing in God. But then he started to think about it a little bit more. He had good friends around him who helped him to think about this a little more. Good friends like J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings. And, and this is what he came to realize. It's a long quote I'm going to give you here. He's a professor, so we know how long-winded they are, but listen carefully. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe then when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it's nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying the world was really unjust. 
not simply that it did not please my own fancies. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, hey, my problem with God is that this world is unjust. But where do I get that idea of injustice? If there is no God, if there is no perfect, if there's no straight line, then how can you even know what a crooked line is? In order to know what is unjust, you have to know and have some sense that there is something that is just. In order to say that there's something wrong, there has to be some idea of what is right. And so if this is all there is, this world that's full of so much injustice, this world that's full of so much suffering, this world that's full of so much evil, if this is all there is, why do we find ourselves in such violent reaction against it? If this is all there is, we should just accept it and not expect anything different. But there's a deep sense in us that things are not how they're supposed to be, that things are not right. Why is there that deep sense? Because there's a God who's made things that to be right. And we know this. We know this instinctually. Friends, understanding of suffering and evil, that comes from God Himself who created us not to experience these things of suffering and evil and justice, but created us to experience Himself. And so this very idea that we can't have a God if evil exists, it's like, no, you can't say there's such a thing as evil if God does not exist. But we do. We do say there's evil. We do say there's injustice. We rise up against these things. Why? Because there's a God who's created this world. And we know that instinctually. And that's where our sense of justice comes from. It can't be explained by anything in this world. And so there, there, the only explanation can be that there's a God of another world who's given us these things. And so if you start to have questions with other people, our question, our, as we talk with other people, our point is not that Christians are good and everyone else is bad. It's not all what we're trying to say. We're trying to say, listen, I see that there's good in you. I see that you care about things. My question for you is, why do you think that exists? Why do you think that exists? How do you explain your conscience? I believe you have one. How do you explain its existence? Start having conversations like that, and friends, you're going to end up at the feet of God very quickly. But this then brings another question. It really is, what is your solution for the human dilemma? What is your solution for the human dilemma? See, here's this reality. We're all living in a dilemma. Because we have a sense of morality. We know right and wrong. We believe in that. But also we know that we don't always do what is right. And we believe in that too. Like we could be the kindest, most loving person in the world, but we also know ourselves. And we know that we're not perfect. I was watching an episode of uh, Dr. House. If you guys ever saw that show, it's about a brilliant doctor who's really just a terrible person. Uh, but anyways, in any regards, he has this patient who comes in, and the patient has some kind of syndrome, I forget what it is, but essentially he can't stop whatever's in his mind from coming out of his mouth. There's literally, literally no filter. And with the span of the episode, which took place over three days, he had lost his wife, his kids, and all his friends, just because he was speaking every thought he had. Let's be honest, that'd probably be true for almost all of us. 
we think our thoughts, the things that can come into our minds, that we have the self-control and the self-discipline to not act on and not do, praise God. But just our own thoughts, friends, we know that there are things that are deeply wrong in us. We know that. And so we have a dilemma. How, how, how can we say that there's right and wrong and then also we're now going to feel we're saying something bad about ourselves at the same time? It creates a tension inside of us. This is why verse 18 says our desire, the natural human desire, is to suppress this truth about God in unrighteousness. The natural desire of the human heart is to just suppress the truth about God. Now, to say that, he's not saying is to suppress that God exists. It's not what verse 18 says. No, most people believe that God exists. 75% of Americans, as of last year, said they believe that there's a God who exists. So when he's saying, Paul's writing to the Romans and saying that they suppress the truth about God, he's not saying that we are all atheists, although there are certainly some who are. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that we suppress the truth about God. Here's the truth about God. If there is a God, then the truth is that we are accountable to Him. That's the truth about God. It's not just that He exists, but it's that His existence means something for our lives. If there's a God who made us, we are therefore responsible to the one who created us and made us. And so we want to suppress this truth. We want to believe in God, but not act like we're accountable to God. We want to believe in God and yet live as if we're the God of our own lives, answerable only to ourselves. This is the inclination of every human heart. We want to believe in God, but not believe in accountability. But this really causes a dilemma. Because if we're saying that we're not accountable for our actions, if we're saying that God should not hold us responsible for what we do and don't do, then if God shouldn't do that for us, why should he do that for anyone else? This justice that we were just talking about, this justice that we all want, we usually want it for other people, but we don't want it for ourselves. But that's inconsistent. There's either a God who brings justice, or there's not a God who brings justice. And so this creates a dilemma. This creates a dilemma. We want there to be accountability on one hand, but we don't want there to be accountability on the other hand. We want to suppress the truth about God in this way. Yale theologian Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian who saw tremendous violence in the Balkans. This is what he says about God and, and God of justice. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. If God can see all this violence and this wrongdoing and this evil that exists in this world, and if God does not do something ultimately about it, that's not a God worth worshiping at all. And we, we feel that. I feel that. And I'm like, yes, we want that. We don't want things to go unanswered. We want there to be ultimate justice. But this creates a problem. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? If I'm honest with myself, if there's this God of justice, how's that going to hit my life? And so you see we have this dilemma. We have this dilemma where 
we know right and wrong, and we want justice because we want what is right, but we also don't want it at the same time because we know we do wrong. And so there's this conflict that exists between our desire for justice and our self-awareness of ourselves. And so this is why every worldview, every single worldview, whether it be religious or secular, every single worldview is trying to give people a sense of self-justification. Here's how you solve and answer that dilemma. Here's how you can believe that there's a God who brings justice, or if you don't believe in God, here's how you can believe in some kind of ultimate justice and yet still let yourself off the hook at the same time. That's what every single worldview is after. Here's a way for self-justification, a way to prove yourself, a way to show that you're good, you're not like those other people, you're better than most, you're going to be okay because you do X, Y, and Z. And they give you some kind of roadmap. You know, it could be a secular worldview of, hey, listen, as long as you do right by your family, you're a good person. And that good will outweigh whatever bad you do. Right? Or a religious worldview, as long as you keep these certain sacraments or do these certain performances or do these certain religious functions, then you're okay with God and you're a good person. It's all looking for self-justification. It's the same thing. But there's two challenges with this. There's two challenges with this. First... This is the cause of a lot of division in our world. Because if I'm trying to justify myself and prove how good I am, what am I naturally doing? I'm showing that I'm superior to you. Right? If there's levels of goodness and I can show myself to be better, that shows that I can show myself to be better than you. That's why so often there is division in this world. Because we're all fighting for self-justification. And when we are fighting for self-justification, we are naturally putting down others to elevate ourselves. And then the second challenge that we have is this, is not only does it breed superiority and division, also it brings a lot of insecurity. It brings a lot of insecurity. If you're fighting to justify yourself, if you're fighting to prove that you're good enough to whoever, either God or yourself or someone else, if you're fighting to prove that you're good enough, how good enough is ever good enough? When will you actually be satisfied? If you're trying to justify yourself, like, I don't know, do you get graded on a curve? You know, hey, well, I'm not as good as, you know, Gandhi, but I'm a lot better than Hitler, and so I'm hoping, like, right? There's an inherent self-introspection that will just continue to eat yourself up. You'll always feel insecure because you'll never be assured that you're actually good enough. It doesn't matter how much good you do, how much is enough? It's a question that you can't answer. And so if we're saying that we can justify ourselves and that's the solution to this human dilemma, then we're always going to either, one, have superiority or, two, have insecurity. God in the Bible gives us a different answer. He doesn't give us the answer of self-justification. He gives us the answer of divine intervention. Divine intervention. The Christian message is not the message of here's how you get better. The Christian message is the message of here's how you can be rescued. It's not here's what you do to improve yourself. It's here's what's been done to you to save you from yourself. As God steps into human history and Jesus Christ as fully man and fully God lived the perfect life that we could never live. And then on the cross takes on all of the justice of God for the wrongs we do. First Peter chapter 2 says he himself 
bore our sins in his body on the tree. Galatians chapter 3 says that Jesus became the very curse of sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says God made him who knew no sin to become sin. That's what's happening on the cross. And as we looked at last week, that is why what Jesus is experiencing on the cross is hell itself. All that God in His justice, all of His divine wrath, His violent reaction against the evil of this world, that let's be honest, the evil that can exist in our own hearts and minds, all of that that would take us an eternity to experience in hell, all that is poured out into Jesus Christ on the cross. And so for us, our solution to the human dilemma is not self-justification, but it's believing in the finished and full and complete sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf for our justification. We're not good, He is. And so we put our faith in Him, what He has done gets credited to our account. We are not trying to prove ourselves through doing good deeds. There's nothing we could do that's better than what Jesus Christ has done. And so our confidence is in Him and Him alone. This is why superiority should be completely antithetical to Christianity. If you're a Christian, you should never think that you are better than someone else. Because the first step of being a Christian means that you're a sinner who could not save yourself. And the only way to be saved is putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And so as I look at other people who don't believe like I do, who, because they don't believe like I do, they don't even act like I do. As I look at other people who are completely opposed to God and the Bible, I'm not trying to see like that I'm better. I'm seeing a mirror of myself and who I was before Christ. As Christians, we should never judge anyone. We should never look down on anyone. We should never be like, man, how could you struggle with this? What's wrong with you? You should know better. You should be better. No, friends, the message of Christianity is not about knowing better and being better. The message of Christianity is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's our hope. That's my confidence. I'm not superior to anyone. He's superior to everyone. And so our faith is in Him. And so the Christian message undercuts superiority at it needs. At least it should. At least it should. God help us for when it doesn't. And also, this message of divine intervention, friends, this is what solves our insecurity. How good is good enough? I don't know and I don't care because Jesus is enough. And the good I do is not about me trying to justify myself. No, it's me as a son of God trying to honor the Father. I'm not trying to earn a way into his family. He's adopted me into his family by his action, not by mine. By his choice, not by mine. I'm saved by Jesus Christ through faith alone, by grace alone. And so because that, any good I do does not change my standing with God. It's just a way to bring honor to God. And so I'm not superior and I'm not insecure. Your worst day does not change God's affections for you. 
and your best day does not make him love you more. God is not relating to you based upon your performance. He's relating to you based upon the performance of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 says, What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus for us? Friends, you need to understand the love of God comes to us in Christ Jesus. And so when we are in Christ Jesus, God's love for Jesus never changes. And so if we are in Him, there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. Because we are in Christ. And God never stops loving His Son, Jesus Christ. And so friends, if you think about it, we're really kind of ending up where we started. Time and time again in this series, as we've looked at different questions, as we've looked at different thought processes, all roads lead back to Jesus. If you're joining us online or been coming out here recently in person, let me just make it very, very clear. Every single sermon you'll hear at Christ Church is somehow, some way, going to get back to Jesus Christ. All roads ultimately lead to Him. Because as we talk about trusting God, the reason that we can ultimately trust God, whatever question we have, the reason that we can ultimately trust God is not because we know every answer, but because we know Jesus. If you know Jesus, you can trust God even in your doubts. You can trust God even in the things that you don't know. Friends, it really is as simple as knowing and believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. How are we not divided by religion? That was the first question that we looked at. Because Jesus is a way for there to be unity in this world that wants to create division. His love for us should make us loving to others, no matter what they believe or who they are. How can we trust what the Bible says? That's the second question we looked at. Because Jesus is the Word of God. He is Himself the revelation of God. And this is what He said is God's Word. How can we believe that there's an all-powerful God who could allow so much suffering in this world. Because Jesus shows us that yes, God is in control of all things and nothing can stop His perfect plan. And what we might view as death is God just bringing resurrection. And as we look at that answer, that's not just a, a truth. No, we've seen God shows us His heart. He's present with us. We know God is present with us in our pain. As we saw Jesus weeping tears with people in their suffering. How could a good God allow hell to exist? We've seen it, that He loves us so much that He would allow Himself to experience hell for us. Friends, in every question, in every doubt, in every thought that we have, the Bible tells us to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. We bring it to Jesus. All roads lead back to Jesus Christ. If there's one statement that should be over this series, one truth that we should take home and have tattooed over our hearts as we go through this world of uncertainty, as we go through this world of doubt and confusion, it's the simple truth that Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our uncertainties, in the midst of our questions that we will not even necessarily get fully answered, we see again and again how Jesus, He is the way. 
Jesus, He is the truth. And Jesus, oh, in Him, in Him we find our life. Let's pray.